0: This is the Forbes interview on Podcast One.
1: And I'm your host, Steve Bertoni. On this show, I'll do deep dive interviews with billionaires, entrepreneurs, and influencers. These are the faces you see on the cover of Forbes. And if they aren't on the cover, they easily could be. Please subscribe to the Forbes interview on iTunes. And while you're at it, leave a five-star rating and review. Your support will help keep the show going. Thanks so much. So we're here to talk with Brad Katsuyama, who is the founder of IEX, the trading platform and exchange now that is was set out to be fairer to investors some say to fix a rig system um and in the meantime you were able to get a lot of powerful brokerages and exchanges and very rich people very angry with you yes let's go back (laughs) and talk about the origins of this i mean you were a trader at royal bank in canada Mm -hmm. Um, very good job very comfortable tell me how this all came about how did idx get started
2: so iex Really was kind of born out of this problem that I experienced as a trader It was basically the fact that the bids and offers that I saw on my screen in 2006 if I saw a hundred thousand shares of Microsoft offered I could go out there and buy it But in 2007 I'd see a hundred thousand I couldn't I couldn't buy it And my and what that meant is you know When you can only buy fifty thousand of the hundred that you're showing on your screen It means that the market actually is just an illusion of sellers willing to sell a hundred thousand shares because they they weren't and as you start to dig deeper and deeper into the layers of the stock market, what you begin to realize is that when you turn on CNBC and you see a bunch of people running around on the floor of the exchange, which which I know that you worked at one point. I was, right? I was running around. <laughs> so, yeah. So don't, don't.
1: I was running around with pizzas in my hand.
2: That's right. That's right. I actually had to deliver pizzas back in 2002 to the floor. That's the picture of the stock market that the majority of, of the public thinks is the stock market. As you start to dig in deeper, you realize actually that no trading happens on that floor. All the trades from that floor are beamed out to a data center that New York Stock Exchange built out in New Jersey. So the stock market really is just computers that are being interlinked.
1: Hey, everybody. This is Steve, and we're taking a quick commercial break. When we come back, hear Brad explain how Wall Street takes advantage of everyday investors.
0: Hi, this is Laurel, executive producer of the Forbes interview, to tell you a little bit about TrueCar. TrueCar. When you're looking to buy a car, you want to make sure that you're getting real pricing on actual inventory. Unfortunately, a lot of times this isn't the case. People configure cars online only later to find out they're not available. With True Car, you get real pricing on actual inventory. This is not pricing offered by TrueCar, but pricing from an actual dealer and not just any dealer, but a true car certified dealer. This is a carefully curated network of dealers committed to transparency and offering you a competitive market price. Using TrueCar, you can easily find the car you want. You'll be able to see what other people in your area paid for the same car you're looking for. With that information, you know what a fair price is so you can feel good about moving forward to purchase. And there are over 13,000 True Car certified dealers nationwide. When you're ready to buy, visit True Car to enjoy a more confident car buying experience. Some features not available in all states.
1: Yeah, the stock exchange itself is just like the best stage in America. It's basically a stage for CNBC. Uh,
2: yes, it's, and you've heard people that work on the floor say it's a TV studio. Oh, yeah. and, and so I think that that perception that most people have the stock market isn't reality. And um, my position at RBC, got I, I got offered a job to work in electronic trading, which meant I went from managing human traders to computer programmers and network engineers that were building algorithms that my old team, the traders, used to use. And it turns out that these people actually knew more about how the stock market plumbing worked then the traders. Traders understand risk and they understand fundamentals. That really wasn't what was driving stock markets anymore. And as it turned out, they created a picture of the stock market together with my help that started to lay out the fact that the stock exchanges themselves are not these nonprofit utilities that most people think they are. They are for-profit entities that are selling technology and data advantages to a group of high-speed traders that turn them into the largest customers of the stock market. They're 50% plus of the of the, of the volume is traded by 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 computerized traders and and the challenge is is that not all computerized traders are doing bad things some of them actually provide a service to the market some of them don't and people hide behind this oh the stock market is better now than it was 20 years ago of course it is because technology like the phone in your hand now is better than the (laughs) cell phone you slung over your shoulder so that's progress but to hide behind this natural evolution of technology is to completely ignore the fact that people are using technology to pick off everyday investors, and, and that's we started IEX as a tech technology company, hiring people from exchanges and high-frequency trading firms, et cetera, to say, you know what? This isn't the way the stock market was intended to be. The exchanges have completely lost their, um, you know, their role in the market, and the most underserved parts of the entire investment ecosystem are actually investors in the publicly traded companies. And they're the reason the stock market exists in the first place.
1: So, Brad, just for some of our listeners, what exactly is high-frequency trading or high-speed trading?
2: You can bucket it into two camps. One camp is really just automating manual trading from before. The other side of high-frequency trading, which is really what we're focused on, are it's a more aggressive kind of high-speed trading. They're looking for signals of buyers to race you to other markets. And those aggressive forms of trading really... Prey upon and pick off long-term investors that trade at a much slower rate. So some aspects of high-frequency high trading are, are positive, and some aspects of high-frequency trading are, are negative.
1: Michael Lewis said it was you can trade how many millions of shares faster than the human can blink an eye, kind of thing.
2: Oh, absolutely. I mean, we're talking about microseconds when it takes 300 milliseconds. It's, it's a thousand times longer for you to blink your eye than it is for them to to execute some of these trades. And and the challenge is is that you know if you're buying 100 shares through a retail account, you're fine. But if you're invested in a mutual fund that's trying to buy a million shares of that, um, that's not that's not happening in an efficient way in today's market. That's sending signals or getting ahead of that buyer. And and that has a trickle-down effect to your 401k and your retirement. Um, again, little bits at a time, diffuse harm, but a concentrated benefit for the people that are making billions on the other side. One one funny tangent here is that, is, so there's a really funny um, John Oliver clip on the lead industry. So Michigan had problems with lead in the water. He shows this video of the president of the Lead Industry Association from the 80s. Oh, boy. And this guy gets on there and says, talking about increasing amounts of lead in the water, he goes, so we've never lived longer and we've never been healthier. What's wrong with the lead in the water, right? So if you you use that rationale, then increasing amounts of lead has led to longer life expectancy. This is the kind of rationale that people use to justify what's happening in today's market, it's better now than it was twenty years ago. It's faster, it's cheaper. It's nonsense, but it's part of this whole kind of machine to you know throw smoke in the air and dust in the air to to confuse people. The the, the more confused the public is, the better it is for the people that know exactly how the market works.
1: <laughs> it's like cigarettes are great. No one's living long. We're living longer. Now. <laughs> That's right. And there smoke, you go. Light one up. That's right. So, Flash Boys was a best-selling book written by Michael Lewis talking about these high frequency traders, kind of this drag race to trade faster and faster and faster. People drilling through mountains to lay straight cable, putting satellites on um, top of mountains to trade as fast as possible. And then you guys, who are out to basically beat the speedsters by going slow.
2: Yeah, ab- absolutely. If I could add one thing to that. You know, the funny part about Flash Boys is that a lot of people walked away from that book upset with high-speed traders, and this man versus machine, et cetera. And what people missed, and Michael Lewis had in that book, is that people should be most mad at the exchanges because the exchanges are the ones that sold the ability for the high-speed traders to race. They enabled them in a way um, that made this problem almost embedded in the system. And I think that um, it was easy to walk away being angry at high-speed traders, but others can just view them as capitalists. The system's inefficient. They're just taking advantage of that. I view the exchanges as the people that are purposely creating inefficiencies to sell solutions
1: to a very narrow class of traders for a tremendous amount of money. And a lot of computer trading is actually very, very good. That's right. That wasn't what the, the thrust of Flash Boys was, but that's what the public kind of grasped onto. When you were at RBC, you ran, you ran a desk. Yes. You were making seven figures at one point. Yes, millions a year, right? Seven figures. (laughs) You know, you you were one of the few people that understood like a trick in the game, and the trick wasn't illegal. It was what traders do; they make money. And you could have taken that and done what a trader does and make a ton of money. Instead, you made it public and you kind of tried to fix the problem instead of making money off the problem. Why did you do that?
2: In many ways, the tide was changing in that um, we weren't the first people to discover anything. We were probably fifteenth or twentieth, but every single person before us just became part of the problem so So I think it's it's realizing that in the long run, we were far better served educating people about what was happening. I spent my entire career as a trader, not a not a trader trading my own book. My own money. I did. I was able to, you know, trade capital on behalf of RBC. But I had clients. Those clients were mutual funds and pension funds. And I actually took my job seriously. When they gave me large orders, I realized that this large million shares of Microsoft to buy represented the retirements and savings of everyday people. And so I took that job very seriously. And when you realize that these people are getting bait and switched in the market, and that they're on the losing end of so many of these trades because they don't, they don't trade in microseconds. They don't make decisions in microseconds. Um, you know, I was just, I, I just, it was unfair. And I think if for, for, for my saying, whether it's naive or not, we just turned around and said, you know what? This is, this is, this is wrong. We just got to stop it.
1: And you kind of rebelled against the system and growing up, were you a, a rebel or an entrepreneur or someone who bucked trends? Not
2: at all. The funny part is when, when Michael Lewis was, was writing flash boys,
1: he came to me one day
2: and said, you know, you're pretty boring. <laughs> and he goes, I'm having a hard time having, I'm having a hard time getting you to jump off the page. And what he did is he went up to Canada. Oh, one funny story is he said, uh, basically, tell me something controversial about your background. I said, well, I said, you know, my, my parents got divorced when I was five years old. He's like, oh, wow. He's getting like, excited. Like, tell me more about that. How did that affect you? And I said, <laughs> well, they're, they're still friends. And, and my dad comes over for Christmas. And so he's like scratches at it. He's like, let me go up to, you know, let me go find out myself. So, <laughs> so he went up, spent time with my mom and my stepdad and drove around, went to my old house, had dinner with five of my like, friends I've known since I was five years old. Um, and then he came back and he said, "You know what? He's like you were never looking to get in this fight. The fight found you. You fought back." And actually, that was the first time it had been explained to me in a way that kind of, to me, provided the right context. I was very nervous about the book because I, I feared that it would paint me as this, as this rebel. Mm-hmm. Um, and I feel like I feel like he got it right in the fact that I've done. I I was always the go with the flow guy. I was always the person to stop the fighting. I was always the person to walk away. Like it's just. You know, I played sports. I got in a lot of organized fights but, inside yeah. <laughs> of a hockey arena or something like that. But I never—it's just never part of who I was. But this was one fight that was just, in a way, we stumbled into this, and we said, okay, if we're not gonna, if we're not gonna solve this, it, it might not get solved. And and I think, um, you know, we just we felt like it was this was the path. You know, my wife's always said this is the path you're meant to be on, and it feels awkward at times. And but uh, yeah, I, I just feel like you know this is. This is what, you know, we were meant to be
1: doing. Were you always able to see around corners and see things that people didn't? One important lesson that I learned in school, I don't want to say I, I
2: didn't try in school. I, I tried just enough. I'd run all these analysis and basically would say, on this final exam, given what percentage of my overall weight it is, I can get a 55 and still get an A. And I would, I would ration my studies according to what I needed to get on various tests um, to study the the least amount I could to actually get the marks I wanted. (laughs) But no, I think, you know, I was taught, my dad hammered this point home at me. He goes, learning's just about concepts. So forget trying to memorize, focus on understanding. So some people look to memorize textbooks and I choose to, and I still do this today, I want to understand why. I don't want to just regurgitate why, I want to understand it. Um, and I think that leads me to asking a ton of questions mm-hmm. and asking a, the next five questions that maybe the, you know, someone else wouldn't ask. And I think that type of training and that type of curiosity and work ethic drives you down a path to say, you know, a lot of what's, what's happening in the stock market today is about incentives, right? What is, like, like, you know, what does a broker incentivize to do with a client order, What is a high-speed trader incentivized to get the exchange to do? Why is the exchange incentivized to prioritize high-speed trading? Like all of this kind of at a very high level, once you understand the incentives, then you can identify the blind spots and the the kind of the weaknesses and the argument, et cetera. So I think that focus on concepts and understanding. Um, I've had that since a very early age mm-hmm. and I think it's probably just, you know,
1: exploded in this particular thing. And you're efficient. You learned, you didn't work hard. You worked, you worked smart as the the new, uh, the phrases these days. What was your first job?
2: My first job was a hockey instructor at a camp, you know, teaching, you know, four and five-year-olds how to skate.
1: That works well on Wall Street because you, it's basically like managing four-year-olds. So. <laughs>
2: yeah, it was, uh, you know, that, that was fun. I, I, my, you know, I had another job working, I played football in college in my, uh, and stupidly, um, you know, my coach said, hey, I can get you a job at Nike. And I showed up the first day in like a suit. And they said, no, that's not your job. Your job is in the, in the warehouse hauling boxes. <laughs> and so, it, you know, the, so, I ended up, so that, that was kind of a part-time job. My first real job was actually at the World Bank of Canada. I was an intern in the late 90s. Um, so I spent my entire like, like professional career working at one firm. So leaving um, certainly wasn't easy. Uh, but, yeah, I spent my whole career at RBC.
1: And, you know, you're an entrepreneur, a founder, kind of inventing a new category, but before you spent your like, professional life as a trader, which is the exact opposite of an entrepreneur. As a trader, your day is like Groundhog's Day. Every day resets. Yes. Every, all your sins get forgiven and your triumphs get flattened out. You think in the nanosecond, not in the long term. Yeah. How do you start a company when you're just taught and been trained to think second by second instead of year by year in strategy? Right. How do you get off the ground?
2: That's, that's actually a very good question. At first, I traded energy and I traded tech. But in 2005, I got asked to run our technology trading business. And I was, you know, 24, 25 years old. The term intrapreneur uh, is what people now coin an entrepreneur that works in a large organization. And I had seven jobs in 12 years. My boss uh, at RBC, I worked for him for 10 years, this guy Bobby Grubert, he just kept pushing me out of my yeah. comfort zone. I I'd get comfortable in a job and he'd say, go take, go do this or go do that. <laughs> so I got very lucky as a trader to be able to run businesses what the you know the baggage i brought with me as a trader is just this natural tendency to react mm-hmm. um trading is about react something happens you react sometimes you react with equal and greater force and that,
1: always, that doesn't always lead to diplomatic outcomes it's kind of a passive job in the sense that you're waiting to, you're being pushed by the day instead of you leading the charge
2: absolutely and, and a lot of times you have to because if you try to lead the charge, you can get, you can get crushed yeah. so i think Um, but that natural tendency to react now as the CEO of IEX and kind of the ups and downs and all the things that we've gone through, you know, my team has taught me to be patient. I'm I'm learning to not be a trader. I feel like I got lucky in the fact that I was able to manage a lot of businesses. Um, but I totally am aware of, of some of the baggage I brought with me. Absolutely. (laughs) I, I want my screens to look the same way and I like consistency and I like, I like these things, but, you know, you know, my, my life since, since kind of starting IEX has been anything but consistent. It's been all over the place. So you, it's, it's, it takes time to adapt. But, yeah, some of these things are just deeply ingrained. And as a trader, you know, the one great part about it is just passion. You know, you, keep, you care deeply. You act in your gut, and you're willing to take risks. And I think, um, you know, those, those have been helpful things that, that I brought with me.
1: And speaking of taking risks, how old were you again? Remind me when you, when you left RBC to start IEX.
2: Um, so it was 2012, so it was 34.
1: Okay, you are 34. Yeah. You were making more than a million dollars a year. You had pretty good hours. You didn't yeah. have to uh, be on the road that much. You had a sweet gig. Yes. What was the jumping off point to say, I'm going to leave this dream job for a lot of people and work in a closet with a couple guys <laughs> and risk everything? So... I think there's a, there's a few things, and, and just to add to
2: that, our second son, we now have three kids, but our second son was born three days after my last day at RBC, so life was changing dramatically, and you know I had other people to think about it other than myself, so my wife had a kind of a, a big role to play in, in deciding what to do. I think there were, there were three things. First was that we discovered this problem, we had solved it with products at RBC, but that only helped clients who decided to trade with RBC. And clients came to me, a couple of big mutual funds came to me and said, we love what you've done at RBC. We love your team, but it's only solving 4% of my trading problem. Yeah. What about the other 96% of my trades? Start to think bigger. And so that it's frustrating when the best product doesn't always win. And, and I think that gave us a feeling that although we had solved something, we'd only solved it in a very minor way, not not in a significant way. You know, this, the second aspect was that, Because we had this success at RBC, we went from number 19 to number one in the Greenwich Associates Survey for Electronic Trading, which is like unheard of. Um, All the key parts of my team were getting job offers, including myself, Mm -hmm. to go to other firms. So I had to kind of look and say, I can't offer. And it'd be irresponsible for me to try to keep everyone here. How do I keep this team together? That was part two. And then the last part was just this idea post-crisis. I started to see the impact society was having on finance, and I may, I probably was a little bit wrong on this because I thought it would be more accelerated, but I started to read articles about banks being worried about how much they paid their employees mm-hmm. because they had taken this TARP money, This society was going crazy over bonuses, and I started to look at that and say, wow, people are actually concerned about what they pay their their people. Um, as, as
1: optics, as, as, as PR.
2: As optics, yes, and I think that to me was saying this whole landscape is shifting so so leaving and and I did it actually on friendly terms with RBC was part about saying let's solve a bigger problem it was also part of saying you know to kind of my you know my core team there's a way we can stick together like we're, we either all go off on our own way and try to make as much money as we can and maximize this lightning in a bottle we've caught or we can stick together and try to do something different and we can start from scratch mm-hmm. we can build a, a company that's looking just to you know fight back in a way and, and uh, I wouldn't have left if the group, you know, I'm, I'm one of eight co-founders. Yeah. I wouldn't have left if, if I didn't have that kind of central group of, of people that, that agreed to go And did the whole group go. Actually, no. Uh, so there's six of us that went and, and it was on friendly terms, but yeah, I think RBC knew too, that there was no way this group was going to stay. Um, uh, you know, people were getting offered double what they were making at RBC, which was mm-hmm. already pretty good money. So yeah. it, it's, it was just one of these situational things. And I'm, you know, again, you look back and, you know, I'm so happy that, you know, we stuck together. Collectively, we said, you know what? As a, as a group, we're going to figure it out. We're making a bet on the team, not on this idea. And that gave me a huge amount of confidence and to let them walk in eyes wide open. And I think we said, you know, if we stick together, we're going to figure this thing out. And the four of us are still driving this. We've added some incredible talent along the way. And I think we're kind of, you know, in the early stages of doing something really big.
1: And you became the heroes of a Michael Lewis book. Now, right. Michael Lewis is the myth maker of wonky nerds right. in a good way. <laughs> he can turn, you know, he's done everything from Liar's Poker to The Blind Side to yeah. Moneyball. Like These all become the blockbuster movies, of course, to be short. Yeah. And you became the hero of that. Yeah. Uh, and Tell me a little bit like how that happened and also what it was like to, you know, you're a startup and suddenly you are have a, giant bestseller written about what partially but what you guys are doing
2: yeah so first of all I had read almost every book Michael Lewis had written
1: when I first you
2: know Scott started as an intern at RBC. I said what should I read they said Liars Poker I got Moneyball 2004 before I take on a new job I reread Moneyball because again it's when I moved to the US in 2002 RBC was ranked number 23 I think they're top 10 now. Mm-hmm. So every time I'd read, I'd say, listen, I'm, I'm about to build a business. I have a limited amount of resources, and we're an underdog. How do I do that? And I'd reread Moneyball. So I, I was a huge Michael Lewis fan. And what lessons do you take from Moneyball? Moneyball was mostly about you have to be able to spot anomalies that other people are either blinded to or unwilling to acknowledge. Like, that's, that's the key, right? And, like, it was the bias of the scouts, the old school way of thinking. The bias of the scouts um, led them... To be unwilling to accept that other factors led to teams winning games other mm-hmm. than just raw talent and being able to spot it, um, and there's blind spots in every business you walk into, and a lot of it has to do with incentives. Like they're they're, they're incentivized to not leave this talent assessment to a computer, yeah, and to data. Like so that's, that's their,
1: their incentive is their their job.
2: Absolutely, right. So so a lot of this is is about so. Incentives? Who's making money and from who? Why is that happening? And kind of like, where, where can we fit into this? And and you know what, what blind spots and inefficiencies are out there? But so so um, Sergei Alanikov was was really the reason that Michael Lewis found us. And that was a Goldman uh, yes, coder, right? So he's a programmer. He gets thrown in prison for taking computer code. Michael Lewis reads about this in the newspaper, calls his lawyer, and says, "What's going on?" He gives Michael Lewis the background. Michael Lewis then goes to attend the trials and starts to, like, dig in deeper and says, you know, what is this high-frequency trading? And why why, why is him taking some, some of this code so important? Uh, three of the characters in the big short, Vin Daniel, Danny Moses, and Porter Collins, I know them from my days at RBC. Huh. He calls them and says, how do I learn about high-frequency trading? They said, you should talk to Brad. <laughs> um, as he digs, starts to dig deeper, he's like, well, what – like?" What how do you like what is what's IEX? We're like what are you guys doing? And we're like, oh, we're a startup, we did this. And when once he learned that we quit our jobs, uh, he wanted to see our he wanted to see our office. And we were like kind of I was like I was mortified. I'm like, oh my Michael Lewis is gonna come to his office, they're gonna see us sitting in this little crappy dungeon. Um he came in and instead of being embarrassed, uh he was like massively in- I saw the the light bulb on his head go, like, why is this group of people sitting in this room? Um, and then it shifted to I X. Wow. And then it says, okay, I'll write a short piece. Great. As it started to go deeper, he's like, this is going to be a book. And then at one point, he basically said, I think this might change your life. You got to be ready for
1: this. That could be good or bad news And Michael Lewis told you that.
2: For me, it was a little bit of both because, you know, it's funny. Personally, I don't think I necessarily wanted or I never craved the attention. I was never involved in like, I was never a class president. I was never, I just, you know. That at the time when he wanted like full access to IEX, we were we were a startup with no money, and as a CEO of that company, how in the world can you say no to that? Yeah, it, my, my my CEO hat you know definitely took precedence over my personal uh, beliefs, and and so so we did it. We gave him full access. We, we basically said this is this is who we are, and we'll you know we'll tell you everything that we know, and in a very good way, it brought a complicated story to Main Street. And I think that's helped power IEX through a lot of, you know, a lot of challenges and obstacles. You know, on the negative side, you know, it, it's this common challenge of diffuse harm and concentrated benefit.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: Everyone's getting harmed by little bits. yeah. But all of the, that is go, funneling into a very small number of actors who are making billions, who know exactly
1: what it is that we're doing and are very upset about it. So they're doing fractions of a penny, but they're doing it from everyone in the country
2: that's right so we're helping people that may or may not know that we're trying to help them and we're harming people that definitively know it and are very angry about it so so that being on the other end of that kind of you know uh, anger uh, is uncomfortable and so that you know it 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 shows itself in many different ways and shapes but it's it's so there have been good parts and bad parts Mm -hmm. and 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 uh, I got great advice for Michael Lewis, because I think he's done this to people before with his books. <laughs> and he's, he said, listen, he's like, read an article about you that's positive, read an article about you that's negative, uh-huh. um, and then do an inventory on how it feels. And if the bad one feels way worse than the good one feels good, stop reading everything. And I did that, and it worked uh, because the bad one felt so much worse. It's just like they're calling me liar yeah. and they're saying this and that, and it's all fiction. And, you know, when you, when, when, you know, in a way, your life story is being called lies and you know that's not true uh you know it it definitely doesn't feel good but i think at the end of the day you know where we are now and the fight that we just went through to get our exchange application and you know all of that you know was was extremely vindicating if if it was all lies and nobody cared that would scare me actually if we if we went through our exchange application and no one cared i would sit back and say we must have missed something yeah but we we fought for our lives, um, and it was nasty. And and all the people fighting back, the New York Stock Exchange, Nasdaq, attacking us. Nasdaq threatening to sue the SEC if IEX is approved. These things let you know the stakes are extremely high, um, and that you know we're at the center of that controversy. So it's and been face,
1: facing that initial storm when Flash Boys came out. Probably gave you tougher skin. Uh, when you had to go fight all the exchanges for the when you when you filed for exchange status right
2: yeah you, we've we 've built a pretty thick skin yeah.
1: and, and we 've gotten
2: a very good sense of um, you know when again back to back to the trading right Re- the reaction something comes out and i 'm like immediately like we got to do something, and the team's kind of like we have to pick our battles we can 't fight every fight um, we 're only seventy five people, so I think that You know, we've learned to be patient. We've learned to not engage every actor that, you know, kind of, you know, throws punches at us. And and I think that's been a great learning experience for me. And I think, you know, IEX as a small company has has been pretty good about deciding when and when not to Mm
1: -hmm. engage. And not only did IEX get to debut with Flash Boys, but you also got to debut with a huge 60 Minutes profile with Michael Lewis that, you know, basically dominated at least the financial news for weeks to come. Right. what was that like? Sitting. What did you do when Sixty Minutes aired live? Because <laughs> it's funny. Cause my my uh, sister's uh, friend worked at RBC, and he yeah. was like, "You got to turn the TV on Sunday. This is going to be huge." And yeah. I wa- and then suddenly I just watched my phone blow up, and right. I'm sure your phone right. blew up much more. What was that like? And what was the reaction?
2: So Sixty Minutes was actually the first time I had ever been on television ever. Um, so that's that's an- a good place to start. <laughs> that's a that's a nice intro. And it was it. I think I think in total. I was interviewed for almost three hours and I knew the segment was like 12 or 13 minutes and I knew there was a bunch of people being interviewed. So I figured like three hours of footage and two minutes of highlights. Yeah. It's, uh, it's like a reality show. I'm sure I said some things, you know, like you just start, you just start saying, what did I say? Like what? And, and, and that, but as we got closer, my wife said, you know, do you want to have people over? I'm like, I want no one over. I want, I just want to, I just want to watch this. So yeah. it was my, me and my wife and my two kids. And again, we, it's, it's, the piece turned out good. My phone exploded. I got I had more LinkedIn requests sitting in my LinkedIn account at the end of the episode than I had connections. <laughs> <laughs> we had probably 500 or so resumes sent to IEX's careers at IEX Trading email inbox.
1: Did you did hi- you hire any of them?
2: I think there's a couple out of there that that are now working at IEX. Oh, I mean, great. it's yeah. it it takes a certain kind of person to, to watch that and say. I, I mean, want to help. Yeah, you I'm know, in. Yeah. yeah, So, so I think it was it, the response was great. The next day, thousands of calls, like literally, like veterans saying, you know, I fought for this country. I, you know, thank you for what you're doing. You know, it drowned out a lot of the, the
1: nastiness. Yeah, there was some nasty stuff too, right?
2: There was absolutely some nasty stuff, but the, it was all from a point of self-interest. If, mm-hmm. you, if you're a part of the status quo and you want to keep it that way, you're going to do anything you can to stop this kind of momentum. And I think it's. You know, so, yeah, a lot of things that have been written about us are not true. A lot of things that have been said are not true. But when you trace it back to who's saying it and why, they're all part of the establishment, the status quo. And and I think for us, it it it, it actually almost helped fuel the support we had, the fact that these entities were fighting so hard. So so in a way, you know, it never feels good to be on the other end of that. But I'd say, yeah, 97, 98 percent of it was positive and two to three percent of it you know, totaled all up was, was, was bad.
1: And when, when Forbes wrote a feature on you guys, I think it came out the fall of 2015, kind of the big cliffhanger was IEX was trying to get exchange status. Yes. It was, you were getting the paperwork in order and going to the SEC and becoming an exchange. That happened this June. Yeah. So how has that changed? Well, tell me a little bit about that, but how has that changed and what's, what are you guys focusing on now?
2: Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, that that piece was the first one that kind of kicked off IEX Applying to be an exchange, I think what 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 we underestimated, especially in my conversation with you, was how hard it was going to be. It was it it was a battle, and I think going through that and seeing the reaction of the exchanges gave us a huge amount of vindication. And the the nerve wracking part is it was the first time in my career where everything that I had worked for was in someone else's hands. This was the SEC's decision, and thankfully weighing all of the facts, there were mo- there were more one one quick kind of aside. You go into this process called the public comment period where anyone can submit a comment for or against IEX. There were more supportive comment letters written about IEX's application than all comment letters, positive or negative in the history of exchanges combined.
1: Are we talking like thousands here or hundreds or It
2: was in, it was 550 was the total number I think or 5 something and I think 460 support but you know, trillions of dollars of assets under management, like long term investors, big shops, capital group, Franklin Templeton, mm-hmm. like these people like Cal- California state teachers, Texas teachers, these big pension funds like wrote in and said, we use this trading system. It's saving our constituents millions of dollars. This is real innovation. And it's 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 important. And I think that support was huge. That support forced the exchanges to come at us publicly. And I think that woke a lot of people up saying, why uh-huh. is Nasdaq threatening to sue the SEC? Why is the New York Stock Exchange, you know, screaming and yelling? So so that battle, thankfully, we came out and, and got the approval.
1: Yeah, I had exchanges, not to be named, calling me up trying to be like, you should you need to write a story trying to stop this. And that was a lot of smoke. There's gotta be definitely some fire we there. We had we
2: had one person said that they were offered money to write a piece against IEX and was so upset they ended up for free, writing a piece for us, right? So, like, that's what we were up against. And, mm-hmm. and I think coming out the other end of that, you realize number one that it was vindicating—we're onto something. This whole thing about Flash Boys not being true, like, why would you fight that hard? But the second part is now we got to become an exchange. And for us, the greatest part about being an exchange is that all the data is transparent; it's all laid out, which allows us to run analysis and show uh-huh. what does an exchange look like. What is the quality of trade? on an exchange look like that doesn't sell these advantages. And amazingly, through all the analysis that we're running, this is based on public data, IX is the highest quality exchange for executions. It Meaning that when you buy... Yeah, what does, buy, mean, by, what does when, mean by quality? When you buy where the stock's trading, when you buy in the bid or sell in the offer, where the stock is trading one minute later, where is it? And the the and l mark shows that when you're buying on a lot of these other exchanges, the PL mark is always, is on average, always negative. Mm-hmm. Like you're always in a position where someone else knows the stock's moving lower and you're buying on IX when there's less certainty about where the stock's going because we're not selling these advantages to look into the future as it's more random it actually just becomes better than the exchange that is selling basically people the ability to trade into the future if you have if you can purchase the advanced advanced information if you're co-located if you can do all of that the person that isn't Stands no shot, because you know the direction of the market, and they don't. Mm-hmm. Um, so as we start to run this data, and it gets a little wonky, but it's starting to reprove the thesis, but in a far more constructive way, because the data is public. Anyone can,
1: anyone can run the analysis. And, um, yeah, it's not anecdotal. It's like, it's out here. Here's evidence. It's almost like a here, scientific study. Like, it's out there.
2: Absolutely. And, and for us, I think that's, that's the key to the next wave of this argument, is not just about hand-waving and saying, look at what's happening. It's about saying, it's in the data now what are you going to do about it and i think that that is that now you know ix is still growing you know the largest exchanges in the market are still new york and nasdaq etc and yeah. what a lot of people don't understand those markets pay billions of dollars for people to send them orders see so ix doesn't pay those rebates
1: yeah those are re- it's like come over here we'll give you a little perk if you if you trade
2: absolutely here. so 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 to subject yourself to worst quality executions we'll give you a little payment it creates all sorts of conflicts. There's, it, it just, the the whole onion starts to unravel. And I think for us, having the seat at the table and being able to compete ends up becoming, you know, the thing that we've always asked for. Like,
1: what are you doing now? What's like kind of, what's IEX's mission? What's the the marching orders?
2: First and foremost, getting back, you know, the the application process, I spent more time, you know, we are 75 people. And, and we were taking on massive establishments. We had a single lobbyist when we entered that process they had teams of lobbyists. Mm-hmm. And so we did spend a lot of time in DC trying to educate people. And mostly we're saying, it's funny, I get to the end of some of these meetings and they say, what's your ask? I'm like, my ask is to let the SEC make their decision. Yeah, Like they're the experts, let them, let them make their decision. One funny story is my uh, my four year old son is doing a project at school and they're asking things about it was on Father's Day, what you know, things about your dad? And one of the questions was, What's your dad's favorite place to visit? And he wrote, Washington, DC. I was like, oh no, that's not my favorite place to visit. But it's we spent a lot of time. So now it's really about going back and reconnecting with customers. So I'm talking to brokers and I'm going to visit uh, buy-side clients and just trying to go back out there and reestablish, you know, these connections that that frankly Came second to just getting the right to be an exchange. How
1: has becoming exchange affected the business?
2: So you know, it's we market share, We keep moving higher, right? Market share keeps moving higher. So, so that's
1: when we we first read the story. It was around one percent. Right. What, what is it today?
2: I mean, we're we're north of two percent, and and things are continue to kind of move in the right direction. And So I think, you doubled your business. Yeah, absolutely. Here. And 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 uh, more importantly, as a startup, you know, we're profitable. So that's always you know that that's an in, in, important metric. And being an exchange gives us the right to list companies, to to run their opening and closing auction. And I think a big push for us to be an exchange was to say that, you know, there are two constituents that are underserved. The investor is underserved. We have their support. They fought so hard for us to get us approved. Another constituent that's underserved that probably doesn't even know it, the issuer. You know, one, one CFO put it to me brilliantly. He goes, we're the chips in the casino, yeah, and we, and we actually don't even we're paying we're paying huge sums of money to be the chips in the casino, um you know their stock is the lifeblood of their company, and and it is it's 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 the 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 bridge and the role of the exchange, um and the priorities of the exchange. Look at where they're spending their money. They're building microwave towers. They're building data centers. They're building under the guise that it provides liquidity, but ultimately. Investors are underserved and so are the issuers and that's you know, we're really looking to address that
1: and speaking of casinos and issuers You know Steve Wynn from Wynn Resorts was a big backer of yours He told me that once you became an exchange he'd be the first to list right has that happened has anyone listed? We're getting the um,
2: uh, the rules approved and so it takes time for that to, to launch so that it's a it's a 2017 Event so yeah, we're, we believe that you know, we're we're on track to kind of get that done um, hasn't happened yet, but absolutely it's, it's the interest we've gotten from corporates and, and mostly it too, it's, it's a lot of the interest come from like principles. You know, Steve Wynn is a, is a, is an owner product driven CEO Principal. He mm-hmm. cares. And a lot of the people that have reached out to us are, are people who view their stock as, as you know, this is their life's work. And I think people don't, like the way that their life's work is being treated and I think that you know for us it's a it's a it's a huge opportunity but yeah Steve Wynn's been a great ally and 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 friend he's got a tremendous amount of insight and you know we're just looking to continue to reach out to to people like that and uh and build this business
1: yeah because to me it seems like these days where you list is more of a commodity and it's all about do you want to ring the bell on the stock on the NYSE or you want to press the button on NASDAQ it seems like a great marketing opportunity for you and for a company to be like, we're IPOing and we're listing on IEX. It's another kind of turn the screw for PR. Absolutely. We are we are different. And that
2: resonates with a lot of people. And I think you're hundred percent right, is that, you know, being aligned with the future, I think, is really important for a lot of companies. And being aligned with their investors and their shareholders is really important as opposed to, you know, kind of being aligned with the past. I, I do think exchanges are going to, the, the landscape's going to change dramatically. And I think, you know, as you educate people, they, they begin to realize that.
1: Is there going to be like an IEX bell or a air horn or a siren that people are going to get to press? <laughs> we, we, we have some great
2: ideas. Uh, I won't reveal what they are just yet, but, you know, you you definitely, uh, we'll, we'll let you know when the time comes.
1: Because <laughs> in terms of listing and what you stand for in like fairness and transparency and technology and openness, it just seems to really mesh with the mission of a of Silicon Valley, of a Google, of a Facebook, of an Apple, like it seems like those are that's great PR for them to go for their employees, for their investors. Yeah, is there some sort of outreach right now going from there?
2: So, so at this point in time, it's mostly inbound. Um, but yeah, we're I mean we're we we, we brought on a, a new head of listings. Um, this woman Sarah Ferber, who's incredible. She was the CEO of a major business at Morgan Stanley. She actually was the IR head of IR at Merrill during the crisis. She understands corporate. She understands buy side, and I think the relationship with the corporate clients is much the same as how we built it with the buy side. Um, We're not trying to sell you anything. We're trying to we're trying to teach you about how the market actually works. Um, And and hopefully through that education, you get an appreciation for what it is that we're fighting for and why it's important to you. Um, It very, you know, our, our story has resonated pretty loudly on the West Coast. Um, but again, this is a part of, I think it, it just, it, it, resonates with, with certain kinds of people and hopefully they're the ones that lead the charge. It's the primary focus for us post, post getting approval to be an exchange. And I think, you know, we can, we can, it's been a 45 year old duopoly between, New York and Nasdaq. Forty five years. So so there's an an, an element of stagnation that mm-hmm. kicks in when, when there's such little competition. And I think for us it's it's one of those unique times when a like a CEO or CFO of a company can make a business decision that's aligned with the values of that company. We believe in fairness and transparency and trust and and we want to be aligned with our shareholders and here's what we're doing and why we're doing it. It's it's different than giving money to a charity, which is a I- incredibly important, but it's not a business, maybe it is a slight business decision, but it's it's, it's a different thing. And and I think this is a business focused decision to say, we're making this business decision because of this. And I mm. think it's, it's, it, it's a rare opportunity to do that. And you know, we hope, I think some people recognize it. Some people, you know, if you're one year into your job and you're still filling out your board, I don't know if you want to march in there and say, hey, I'm looking to do something bold. You know, But there are people out there that you know, do have that confidence and that do want to do it. So,
1: And you know, your mission in 2016, you became an exchange. Now that we're here in 2017, what is the goal for this year?
2: Yeah, it's listings. And ensure that we continue to develop products that maintain the quality of trading on IEX.
1: Brad Katsuyama, thank you so much for coming and joining us today. Thanks for having me. Hey, everybody. We're going to take a quick commercial break. When we return, we'll hear a great conversation that took place at the recent Forbes Under 30 Summit. It's between Claire O'Connor, my colleague and friend, and Jessica Alba, actress and founder of the incredibly successful startup, The Honest Company. Stay with us.
0: Hi, Laurel again, and I just checked out Audible. I'm blown away by the amount of books they have recorded and archived. Thousands! Classics, mysteries and thrillers, science and tech, history and stuff for kids, and that's just the tip of the iceberg. I actually downloaded a book by the name of Wonder, Written by RJ Palacio. It runs eight hours and it's going to be perfect for when my family and I take a road trip. I'm super excited about this. And right now, Audible is offering our listeners a free audiobook with a 30 day trial membership. Just go to audible.com forward slash Forbes Network and browse the rich selection of audio programs. Download a title free and start listening. It's a super easy interface. Just go to audible.com forward slash Forbes network. That's audible, A-U-D-I-B-L-E.com forward slash Forbes network and get started today.
3: Lowe's knows you'll do spring right by saving on everything you need to get your garden growing. We do it right too, with incredible deals to help you save during our spring Black Friday sale, like Bonnie Vegetable and Herb Plants, four for $10. And for a clean-looking landscape, pick up five bags of Scott's Mulch for just $10. Whatever's on your spring to-do list, hurry in and save during our Spring Black Friday sale. Do it right for less. Start with Lowe's. Offers valid through 417, not valid on Alaska or Hawaii. Bonnie, offer valid on 19-ounce pots. See store for details, US only. Everyone welcome
4: Jessica Alba, who as well as being a prolific actress, <laughs> as well as being a prolific actress, has managed to uh, start, co-found The Honest Company, which is a non-toxic consumer products company, household goods company, that's worth in the region of a billion to $1.7 billion, which is insane when you think that she started this in 2011. So in five years to go from a baby startup with seed funding to a company that's being looked at as the next great IPO, uh, maybe it might get snapped up, we'll see. Um, But uh, Jessica exemplifies the sort of idea of a multifaceted entrepreneur who starts in one career and makes it in completely another career. Um, In fact, Jessica, I was just telling her because she was not aware of this fact, um, she is uh, the fourth youngest woman on this year's list of the Forbes richest self-made women in America. She is one of four millennials on the list. Yeah, clap. (laughs) Um,
5: I don't know why that makes me uncomfortable.
4: We're going to talk about women what? and the stigma of wealth in a minute, but um, it's just you, Beyonce, Taylor, and Sophia Amoroso, so it's great. And she's the, what I was meaning to get to is that you're the only one on that list who, at age 35, has made her fortune and her, you know, made the list because of your kind of second career. Um, but I want to rewind a little and go back to the beginning because I feel like I'm sure a lot of you have heard a lot about uh, The Honest Company over the past few years, seen headlines, Um, knew that Jessica was involved, but perhaps didn't know to what extent. So I had the great fortune uh, last year of spending some time with Jessica out in Santa Monica at the uh, headquarters of The Honest Company for a cover story for Forbes, which if you have not read, you're you're dead to both of us. Um, But if you Google Forbes Jessica Alba, I'm pretty sure it's the number one hit, not that I checked last night and this morning. Um, So I went and I was able to see firsthand that Jessica truly gets A-list Hollywood treatment like the desk in the open plan office <laughs> with everybody else. Um, when I walked in there, Jessica was so excited because there were boxes of uh, prototype tampons all over her desk. Yeah. She was like,
5: this is dope.
4: It's literally like
5: tampons. Got certified organic <laughs> tampons I, I was with a so bio-based plastic. <laughs> I was so excited. And the design is really cute.
4: It's like not embarrassing
5: to buy. Honestly,
4: it looks like a candle. It was clear right away that Jessica is not the face of this company. Jessica's the founder of this company. Um, but I was hoping you could tell us a little bit about the genesis of Honest because it wasn't, you know, it started in 2011, but it was conceived long before that. Mm-hmm. I know that you suffered a lot as a child. Mm-hmm. You were in and out of hospital. Mm-hmm. Um, and then when you're, you know, you got pregnant with your first child. At the, I was 26 right. when I got yeah. pregnant
5: with my first. Kid. But take us back to your yeah. childhood and you yeah, know, yeah, what yeah, you okay. went through. Wow, this is, how long is this <laughs> going to be? <laughs>
4: um,
5: <laughs> I'm not under 30, so it's going to be very long. Uh, You're a
4: millennial, promise. I'm still considered a
5: millennial. I love this. Yeah. So, uh, when I was a child, uh, my parents actually had me when they were teenagers. And uh, my dad got into the military to help, uh, obviously, uh, pay for our life. Uh, but also to get uh, his education. And so it was like the one place where he can do both. Uh, My parents worked multiple jobs pretty much my whole life. On average, two to three jobs each uh, at a time. Um, And I was also very, very sick. I had chronic asthma and allergies. Um, I had multiple uh, surgeries, different complications with my kidneys and other things. So I spent a lot of my childhood in the hospital, in hospital beds, dreaming really uh, about being anywhere else and anyone else. I think that's why when I decided to be an actress at such an early age, I was 11, and when I started working professionally at 12, I was so adamant that I wanted to be a superhero. <laughs> um, and that's probably why I played so many superheroes, because I just really, as a sick kid, wanted to be, uh, have superpowers. and uh, and overcome anything and save the world. Um, And then in a a bizarre way, when I became a mom and I I, uh, was pregnant at 26, I actually got an allergic reaction to a laundry detergent that my mom recommended that I use. And all this stuff from my childhood came back, and I was like, oh, my goodness, I'm going to have a little person. I'm bringing her into this world, and she might be sick like I was. And I was just horrified at that reality. So I did research to figure out what the heck was in this laundry detergent that could cause an allergic reaction in an adult and how do I avoid such things for my new little baby? And as I did research, I learned that there are lots of untested potentially harmful chemicals in everyday products that are in and around your home, your cleaning products, personal care products, beauty uh, products, Tampons. um, tampons, Lots of things are made from a lot of petrochemicals. Not every petrochemical is bad, but it's hard to know what is what, and it was very difficult for me to try and figure out how to navigate this world. So I went and lobbied um, for chemical reform, and uh, I was. Pregnant, uh, lobbying, and what is it
4: that was insufficient about the current laws?
5: So, uh, TOSCA is um, Toxic Substance Control Act. Uh, It was basically a chemical piece of legislation around chemicals um, that was put in place in 1976. And it hadn't been reformed since then, and there have been more than eighty thousand new chemicals that have been introduced into the marketplace. And there's no standard where they have to test them for safety before bringing them into consumer product goods. And basically, enough people have to die from said chemical before they ban it. Um, Versus in the in the EU, they banned in personal care alone at that time over twelve hundred chemicals because they weren't safe uh, for humans. So I was. Uh, looking around and just thinking like, how are there only 11 chemicals banned in the United States? Over 1,200 in personal care alone in Europe, what's what's going on here? So I went and lobbied and it was a frustrating process because I was forced to make it a partisan issue and it's not, it's like "Mm, everybody just wants to be healthy and safe and live a healthy, safe life. So I took that frustration um, with government and process and I tried to do something positive with it. So I had a non-profit mission, I wanted everyone to have access to safe and healthy products, and I built a for-profit business around that idea. And I felt like if I can make it accessibly priced, if I can make effective products that are safe and transparent in what's inside and what ingredients are being used, um, with beautiful design, why does it have to be ugly? It should be cute. Um, then I think people will vote with their dollars if people only had the option. And so that's where this idea of the Honest Company came from. And the name, people are always like, why that name? It's kind of like a pretty lofty name. And I'm like, well, my daughter's name is Honor, and she inspired me to create the company. And so that's really where the name came from, from my kid, so.
4: I know over the past year you have weathered a few headlines, you, the Honest Company, not just you personally, although because of your celebrity obviously you know your name gets clicks on People Magazine and Us Weekly Um, (laughs) and everybody else (laughs) but um, some allegations that the products didn't have what they said was in there or that uh, they weren't working properly and I want to know what was it like internally when that happened and do you feel like you guys have regained the trust of consumers. Yeah, you know what's interesting,
5: when you face these types of challenges, you do realize, you do understand media and you understand a headline and anyone who digs further than that understands what's actually being said. And uh, I think it was really an opportunity for us to connect with our customers. It gave us a platform for education, people who didn't know who we were. And our customers really got behind us and championed us because they understand that our products are safe, they do work, and they love them. And they, we have a business model that we launched the company with. It's a subscription, so people are every month getting products delivered to their home, and they love their experience. We've transformed people's lives. I've gotten you know, several uh, emails and letters, uh, thousands and thousands actually from our customers, from things like my baby wasn't sleeping through the night because every time uh, she wet her diaper, she had such a bad rash that she would scream, and she wasn't sleeping more than three hours. Which means I wasn't as the mom sleeping more than three hours at a time. And when we switched over to your products, I now sleep eight hours a night. Thank you so much. Like literally to give mom peace of mind
4: and a good night. Got a fan sleep, in the corner. There is
5: nothing better. <laughs> right. Thank um, you. And amen. so things like you know, I I just, for me, it keeps us back uh, more committed to our mission. It keeps us more focused. I think for any entrepreneur out there, when you're faced with challenges, you can't let them define you. You really should use it as an opportunity for you to grow and learn from
4: them. It seems like as soon as there was a bump in the road, you guys were out there proactively message on the website, this is what we're doing. Yeah, yeah, of course. Um, You mentioned the subscription model. Um, So you guys started out, it was really just diapers and wipes, right? And I don't know. Guessing with this audience, no, of millennials. No, it was seventeen products. Seventeen. Yeah, the diapers and the wipes were the kind of the, so that was
5: one bundle. Right. There's our diapers and wipes bundle, and it's a pretty great value proposition. So I don't know who here has babies and diapers well i
4: was going to say Go as millennials <laughs> i'm sure some of you are going to an awful lot of baby yeah. showers like i am and you cannot miss the honest company diapers they're the adorable ones with the little sort of guitars or watermelons or- Yeah.
5: so we do designs on our diapers uh, which are very different to any other kind of alternative diaper company out there um and so they have these really cute designs but you get your diapers and, and wipes delivered to your door for 20 bucks a week, it's cool. 80 bucks a month, which is pretty fairly priced. I mean, we have, have had a lot of mom bloggers do price comparisons on, if I go to Target and I buy these diapers the same amount, I have to pay for babysitting, I pay for gas money, and actually just getting it delivered to my home is, is better for me right, than well, having to go through the hassle of taking my kids to the store. Other times, people are like, I like my delivery service, but when I do go to Target, I still want to get more. Well, you can and can buy so, your product at Target now, And too. so now uh, we do have a, a mix of online and offline,
4: and people really can get us wherever they're shopping, which is really nice. Well, I brought up the diapers because obviously, millennial moms, this is like the holy grail of consumer demographic. Um, not just for a company like Honest, but for advertisers and marketers. Um, and I know that Honest has been uh, trying really hard to target millennial moms and millennials in general with um, innovative advertising and marketing, especially online, and I was hoping you could tell, I'm sure the audience would love to know a little bit about what you guys are doing and what you're finding successful. Yeah, so
5: we, we make diapers and wipes, and I have that bundle, but we also make household cleaning products, personal care products, vitamins, health and wellness, we have um, baby formula, and uh, and I also launched uh, a separate beauty brand. Um, And we're at Ulta Beauty, and we're also on honestbeauty.com. And so when you think about marketing any of these products, um, or really any company today, because I'm not sure what businesses you guys might be going into, but you guys know that, I don't have it with me, this, which we all can buy anywhere, is the most personal device on the planet. There isn't two that look the same. And so when you're thinking of marketing to whoever it is, you should also think about them as an individual. You shouldn't splash the same advertisement to a 50-year-old guy watching ESPN to a 22-year-old college student who's only really downloading videos. Um, You should think of how she's interacting with Snapchat and what type of content matters to her. Versus a mom who is on Facebook and what type of content matters to her? Is she a fitness nut? Does she love looking at vitamins? Talk to her, like for me, I would talk to her about the health of our ingredients, the safety of our products. Um, Versus someone who is a design mom. She has a couple of kids, she loves redesigning the home, redesigning the house. I'll talk to her about my design diapers and wipes. And so it's really about like, segmenting your customer and delivering content that's right for her or him, depending on what platform you're on.
4: I want to go back a little bit to what we were talking about earlier um, in terms of you being on this rich list, which oh, I did not geez. know about. I know, but just bear with
5: me. I'm going to need like armed guards, because <laughs> I don't even know where this is coming from.
4: Um, I'm like, that's not my actual my, life. My, my excellent calculations is where it's coming from. Um, <laughs> Do you, just from interviewing so many women entrepreneurs over the years, be it billionaires or Oprah, also a billionaire, moguls, um, there still seems to be like a little bit of a stigma when it comes to women talking about money and success and wealth. Uh, and I wanted to know what you feel about that because you, know, you came from a, a sort of regular background, as you say, you had yeah. teen parents and yeah. you've, you know, elevated to this level of success which any, no one could ever sort of conceive of and I just wonder uh, how you have sort of come to terms with that yourself, and whether you think that women are getting better at talking about money. I know there's a lot of conversation in Hollywood, obviously, about the pay gap.
5: Right, right. I do think equality is super important. Um, I, I guess when I was five, I was a self-proclaimed... Feminist at but five. At five. Yeah. But, uh, my <laughs> really feminism. Feminism just means equality, and I did feel like women should deserve the same things as men uh, at a very early age. Thanks to my mom and my grandmother who helped raise me, um, and uh, that's always sort of what they stood for. And so I do think that you know as we look at the world, and as you guys are building these companies, really understanding how important it is to include. The other half of the world and make sure that your businesses reflect the world in a real way. And if you can somehow measure your success with diversity, I think that would be pretty cool and innovative. And uh, it's weird that we're here in 2016, we're still really talking about equality, but it's a real issue. Um, and so I think you just, us as, as uh, you know, running. Me at this, in the position that I'm in and and running a company, I know how important it is. Um, For myself, uh, women, we have to really take our seat at the table. Uh, We have to lean in so you do something for yourself. For others, if you're in a position where you can mentor or help uh, a woman up. Um, even if you are in meetings and you're with coworkers, and a woman says something that's smart, just call it out and be like, great idea or I love that thought. That makes all the difference. Uh, that's it, what but, they do in Obama's White House.
4: I don't know if you saw that story. Yeah. Yeah. But
5: it really, it really does. And it just, it just starts to shift uh, the dynamic into a more diverse and a more equal opportunity for everyone. Um, and then, lastly, as business, you know, when you own a business, really make sure that you are addressing uh, a, a modern person. So whether it's a man or a woman, when you do have a kid, make sure you have benefits and you have things in place that allow someone to be a good parent that feel like they can nurture their children, but then also come to work and, and execute. Um, I, I found that my. Uh, most efficient workers are parents because you're sort of forced to so when you get to work you get on your grind you work it out and then you get home so you can you know read books and cuddle Um, and so I I have to say that uh, being able to foster a healthy environment for parents is super important as you guys are, are building companies
4: and there's data that shows that too that parents are the most productive workers so flexible time I guess is the answer Um, I wanted to ask you, I remember an interview you did with Moira Forbes, my wonderful colleague, a couple years ago, when you said that uh, you thought that being underestimated in the beginning when you started The Honest Company had been sort of a gift and that you had been for so long, and these are your words, and I was so struck by it when you said it, that you were seen as just a girl in a bikini, and it just sort of like pierced my heart, (laughs) like a successful business person. Do you feel that that ship has sailed, or do you walk into meetings ever and still think, they're looking at me like I'm like Jessica Alba, movie star, and like I don't do anything at this company. Um,
5: it, it doesn't, you know why it doesn't matter as much a couple of years later? Because I don't allow it to matter as much. I think I allowed other people's ideas of me to find me a lot more. Um, at my ripe old age of 35, I have finally come <laughs> into myself as a woman. <laughs>
4: <laughs> I have it at 33. Anyway, carry on.
5: Um, but I've been able, I feel like, lately really own my power and uh, take the, the position that I feel is rightfully mine and be the leader that I've, wanna always, that I've always wanted to be. Um, it, it took baby steps for me um, because I did feel like, you know, when people see one thing, you know, people do judge books by their cover. That age old saying is real. And, uh, and I can't change who I was or someone's perception of me um, but uh, before they meet me, but once they sit in a room with me, I can shift it like this. And it really is just how I, I think of myself and how I treat myself and what my inner dialogue is. Because at the end of the day, who cares what other people think? And I think as you guys are pursuing your goals as entrepreneurs, you have to walk in with your end goal in mind, and make sure that you are relentless until you walk out of the room, and you make sure that whoever you're talking to gets it.
4: Well, excellent advice. Uh, we're out of time, but thank you so much for being here. We're really great. Yeah, for thank you guys.
1: That's it for this episode of The Forbes Interview. I'm Steve Bertoni. Please subscribe to The Forbes Interview on iTunes. And while you're at it, leave a five-star rating and review. Your support will help keep the show going. If you'd like to share a comment, please email us at theforbsinterview@gmail.com. at gmail.com. Thanks for listening to The Forbes Interview, made in partnership with Podcast One. I'm Ed Donahue.